Have a seat, guys. You know what's weird? We have two different church Bibles. <clears throat> we have the blue one and the half blue one. And if you have the blue, blue one, we're going to be on page 343 today. No, 342. If you have the other one, we're going to be on 381. I will take out to a meal whoever can figure out this problem and solve it for me. <clears throat> Something else is weird, though. I think it's very strange that we gather together to study a chapter of an ancient book about a people you don't know who are being oppressed by people who no longer exist, and it's being taught to you by a guy who not that long ago thought that this entire thing was a bunch of hogwash. And we're, our goal this morning is to draw out life-changing meaning and application from that. That's weird. But we do it because we believe that, that this book, the Bible, is uh, the very word of God. The, the God who created us, who brought each of us here this morning, today, who, and he did so whether we realize it or not. Some of us are here despite great protest. And yet this God has complete, sovereign, and gracious control over all peoples and nations and times and seasons. And with all that at his disposal, he nevertheless cares enough about you personally to bring you here this morning to hear from his word. Lord, over the next half an hour... May we have ears to hear your word. May we learn to honor your word and love you more as a result. We pray it in your name. Amen. This morning we are continuing our study in the book of Isaiah. And if you have one of the church Bibles, you know, you'll find the page. Things are not looking good for the people of Judah. The nation of Assyria has already defeated and taken captive their neighbors to the north, the nation of Israel. And now Assyria has its sights set on Judah. Judah rightly sees its need of some serious help. Unfortunately, despite their profession of faith in their God, Yahweh, whose name means I am, their solution was not to ask him for help, but to seek help from the nation of Egypt. And, you know, this is the same Egypt that used to keep the people of Judah as slaves. The same Egypt whom God eradicated with ten plagues, the same Egypt that God drowned in the Red Sea, and who have generally from that point forward never really been on good terms with Judah, and yet that's their plan. They think it's a great plan. They, they're really excited about that. But it's really a terrible idea for a whole bunch of reasons that we can think of off the top of our heads, and that's where we pick up in Isaiah chapter 30 this morning. These are the words of God as spoken through his prophet Isaiah. Let's read together through verse 7. <clears throat> ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan but not mine, and who make an alliance but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. 
For though his officials are at zone and his envoys reach Haines, everyone comes to shame through a people that cannot profit them. That brings neither help nor profit, but shame and disgrace. An oracle on the beasts of the Negev. Through a land of trouble and anguish, from where comes the lions, the lioness and the lion, the adder and the flying fiery serpent, they carry their riches on the backs of donkeys and their treasures on the humps of camels to a people that cannot profit them. Egypt's help is worthless and empty. Therefore, I have called her Rahab, who sits still. <clears throat> God doesn't hold back right out of the gates in chapter 30. Just look at the words he uses to describe this Egyptian rescue plan for Judah. In verse 3, he says, it'll be to your shame and your humiliation. In verses 5 and 6, he points out that it can't help or profit you at all. And verse 5 uses the word shame again and again and disgrace. In verse 6, God even pronounces a judgment on the pack animals who are going to carry Judah's payment to Egypt. He's saying that all their efforts to carry this money that they think will save them is worthless and empty. It won't work. It's like, it's like making your, your big military deposit to another nation to save you and shipping it via the Titanic. That's a terrible idea. Nothing of any value can come from that, but that's exactly what Judah is doing, eagerly. God even invokes Rahab here. Did you see that? Brief history lesson, if you're not familiar. When the people of Israel came to the promised land, led by Joshua, they were, they were entering and they came to this city of Jericho. And Jericho had these huge walls, big scary city. And so they sent in some spies to check out Jericho and figure out what are we going to do to take down this city. And the spies almost get caught, except there's there's this prostitute named Rahab who brings them in and and hides them and lies to the people, her own people, to protect these, these spies. And so what happens is that when Joshua and the army come in to destroy Jericho, which God does miraculously... Rahab and her whole family are rescued. They're saved from that, and they live among Israel. But here, God is saying, what if Rahab had simply sat still? She hadn't gone out and helped the spies. What would have happened? Dead spies, dead Rahab, dead all of Rahab's family. It would have been completely worthless if she just sat still. There's no help. And so Rahab sitting still is a metaphor for completely worthless help. That's what God is saying through Isaiah to Judah right here. He says, yes, you have a plan, but it's not mine. Yes, you have a military alliance, but it's not mine. Yes, you have taken action, but you didn't ask me about this plan at all. And that's supremely ironic since the name Judah means praise, praise to Yahweh. The word Jew and Judaism come from this word. Yet here they are paying absolutely no attention to their praiseworthy God and instead seeking out the worthless, empty help of man. But it's worse than that. It's not just that they're ignoring God. They're actually in overt rebellion against him. Let's pick up again at verse 8 and read a bit more. And now... Go, Isaiah, go, write it before them on a tablet and inscribe it in a book that it may be for the time to come as a witness 
forever, that they are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things, prophesy illusions, leave the way, turn aside from the path, let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. So not only is Judah making a terrible life choice here by going uh, back to Egypt. But when Yahweh tries to warn them, hey guys, this is a bad idea through his prophets, are they grateful? Are they like, oh man, thanks so much, God. We were totally wigging out there. And so we didn't even think to ask you. Very stressful time, sorry. But because you were so merciful and wise and patient and praiseworthy, you sent prophets to warn us, oh, praise be to Yahweh's name. That would have been a great response. That would have been repentance. That would have been wisdom. But instead, they're saying, no, we don't want to hear about Yahweh. Lie to us. I don't care what he thinks. Prophesy smooth things. Tell us about all the good times that are going to come as a result. Tell us about our fantasies. We love those. Can we hear more about those? So God responds in two ways. The first is that he tells Isaiah, Write this down. Write it all down so that one day in their despair and disgrace, they'll wonder why on earth all this has happened to them. And then they'll at last open their eyes and see. There will be proof written down, which we're just reading from this morning, by the way, that they were in overt rebellion against me. And the second way God responds is in the next several verses. So let's keep reading. Verse 12. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perverseness and rely on them, therefore this iniquity shall be to you like a breach in a high wall, bulging out and about to collapse, whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant, and its breaking is like that of a potter's vessel that is smashed so ruthlessly that among its fragments not a shard is found with which to take fire from the hearth or dip of water out of the cistern. For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling and you said no. We will flee upon horses, therefore you shall flee away. And we will ride upon swift steeds, therefore your pursuers shall be swift. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one, and at the threat of five you shall flee till you are left like a flagstaff on top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. Though he had tried to warn his people of their folly through the sound instruction and prophets and with much patience, eventually his discipline is going to be giving them exactly what they want. Go ahead, he says. Trust in oppression. Trust in perverseness. Rely on all the glory that Egypt has to offer you. You may feel secure as behind a high wall, but it will be breached and collapse. It's bulging out already. It's going to kill everyone. You remember Jericho? <laughs> and he says, you'll be like a clay pot so completely smashed that even the little pieces are useless. There's nothing you can do with them. 
God is saying, I tried to warn you guys. I tried everything. I tried to warn you that this would happen. The image here is, is that Yahweh is standing there weeping as though before, like, like a sobbing parent would be weeping, looking at their grown child through the gates of a prison. I tried to warn you this would happen. All you needed to do was come back to rest, to be quiet, to trust me. Have I ever once let you down? Have when, when Egypt was coming against you at the Red Sea, did I forget you? When giant Philistines came after you, did I not send you a hero to rescue you? And when nation after nation after nation sought to destroy you, did I ever once allow it? But you were unwilling. And you said, no, I don't want you. I'll do it myself. And so you'll flee away, yes, and they'll come faster. There will be no escape. And then Yahweh makes a reference here that we might miss, but that the people of Judah would surely have caught. So I'll fill you in. Back in the book of Leviticus, which these people would have grown up memorizing, in chapter 26, God promised that if his people were obedient, five of them would chase away a hundred enemies. And if you could get some of your other buddies together and there were a hundred of you, you could chase away 10,000 enemies. That's his promise. But here in Isaiah 30, God says that if even five of your enemies show up, you'll be the ones running. All of you will run. And when the smoke clears, you'll each find yourselves absolutely alone, each like a flag on top of a hill. So Yahweh's message to his people is plain. Men cannot help you. Men cannot help you. Even the mightiest of human armies will fail you. And, and friends, this message is not just critical for Judah understand, to understand. It is so critical for you and I to understand that today as well. That's because even though the Assyrian people are long gone, and it's unlikely that many of you have thought, I feel threatened, I better go to Egypt. We've nevertheless each found ourselves tempted to run to man for help. But men cannot help you. Sure, there are tremendous benefits to human relationships and institutions. Absolutely. They're designed to help. Friends and family, hospitals, rescue workers, the military, law offices, educational systems, and so on. These things are all great and they do offer you some help. But none of them can help us to the degree that we need help. All of them are fallible. All of them will disappoint us. Okay, so, for example, have you been tempted to think, perhaps even recently, that if we could just get a good, honest, conservative Supreme Court justice, <laughs> then all the babies would be safe. They won't. Or maybe once you've gotten the right internship or graduate program or manager 
or a new position at work or a new career altogether, then your future would be bright. What about finding the best school for your kids? Because, you know, everyone readily agrees on what that is. And really, even if we all agreed, it wouldn't satisfy. Or Grace Fellowship. Have we ever, have we even recently been assuming that if we could only find the right deacons, then everyone would feel cared for here. And the elders would be freed up to give amazing sermons and lead strategically. And the church would grow and grow. And people all around State College would come to Christ And it would be great. Maybe that's just me. But it won't help. Deacons can't save us. Listen, friends, by his grace, God has given us many, many blessings in the form of human institutions. But man can only do what man can do. But God can do all things. And if we forget that, we're headed for disaster, just like Judah is right now. Now, some of you here, like Judah, may have grown up memorizing these things about him. You've learned all about him. But right now, like Judah, right now, you may be refusing his help. Despite his open invitation and patient kindness that is calling out and saying, in returning and rest, you shall be saved. And that in quietness and trust, you shall find strength. Even though you know that, you continue to refuse him, trusting in man to help you. And if that is you, I believe that you believe that you know him and are justly rejecting him. But friend, I do not believe that you yet truly know him. Please join me as we read how Yahweh deals with the stubborn people of Judah, as well as those of us who are still refusing him today. Picking up, we're just going to read one verse, verse 18. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. Wow. That's just one verse, but wow, what a verse, huh? Therefore, he waits to be gracious. Therefore, he waits to show mercy. (laughs) Friends, he is not here speaking to delightful, obedient children. He is speaking to rebels who overtly reject him and his commandments and his prophets and his help. This is not what we'd expect to read right here. Okay, just a few verses earlier. You remember? He said, therefore, you shall flee away. Therefore, your pursuers will be faster and you're going to die. So we should expect this to read, therefore, you are forever destroyed or rejected or humiliated or something other than shown grace and mercy. And that's not all. That's not the only crazy thing about this verse. He's, it says Yahweh is waiting to do this. He is waiting to bless you. The king who sits on his throne in glory is poised on the edge of his seat and he can't wait to bless you. He's waiting. He's eagerly anticipating the moment when he can unleash unleash the floodgates of grace and mercy on Judah and on you. How 
can this be? Why is this here? Well, we're told in the second half of the verse, but I'll warn you, it's really not going to help. It's not going to make any more sense. Look at this. For, because, you know, this is the reason for the Lord is a God of justice. Justice. Justice? How, how would this be justice? Justice, my fellow Judean rebels, would be like Yahweh squashing us like bugs and wiping it off on the carpet. That, yes, ew. That's right. And he would be just to use Assyria and Egypt for kicks to do it. But no. We're told that blessed are all those who wait for him, for Yahweh. This, this is crazy. This verse tells us that God is waiting to richly bless rebels who are in turn waiting for him. And somehow that's justice. Are there any theologians in the house this morning? I think we need some help here. How do we make sense of this crazy verse? Let's hope for some more help in verse 19. Let's keep going. For a people shall dwell in Zion, in Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore. But your eyes shall see your teacher and your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. When you turn to the right or when you turn to the left, then you will toss away. You will, you will, you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things. You will say to them, be gone. And he will give rain for the seed with which you sow the ground and bread of the produce of the ground, which will be rich and plenteous. In that day, your livestock will graze in large pastures and the oxen and the donkeys that work the ground will eat seasoned fodder, which has been winnowed with shovel and fork. And on every lofty mountain and every high hill, there will be brooks running with water in the day of the great slaughter when the towers fall. Moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun. And the light of the sun will be sevenfold, as in the light of seven days in the day when the Lord binds up the brokenness of his people and heals the wounds inflicted by his blow. Let me tell you, friends, I wish sincerely that I had a full hour to preach just these few verses. I'm sure that we could fill a whole sermon series from this text alone. But let me try to boil it down for you guys. I know it's a, there's a lot of space left in your outline for this one. I'm going to give you four sub-sub points, okay, for those taking notes. First, for, first of four things. First, Yahweh will be gracious when you cry. When the pain, oppression, and hardships come, we're quick to run to man for help, right? But they will fail us. And when they do, and we at last cry out to Yahweh, verse 19 tells us that he will answer when? As soon as he hears it. You don't have to get everything right first. You don't need to get cleaned up. Just cry, and he'll answer it the moment he hears it. He's, he's poised, remember? He can't wait 
for you to cry to him so he can bless you. That's the first sub sub point. Second, intimate relationship with Yahweh is possible. Intimate relationship with Yahweh is possible. Verse 20 tells us that we will see our teacher. We will hear his voice. To the people of Judah, this was a forward-looking promise. We will. We will. It's a mystery to them. But we now know, friends, that that promise is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Yahweh God, whom no one could look at and live, humbled himself by taking on human flesh, that we might see and hear our teacher. He came as Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus then lived a perfect life and died on a Roman cross as a substitute for all of the sin of all the people who would ever cry out to him for mercy. And then God's spirit came to dwell in his people, all his people, reminding us of the words of Christ such that we can hear a word behind us saying, this is the way, walk in it, listen to Jesus, do that. And that very spirit is speaking behind you at this very moment, friends, if you have ears to hear him speaking. And it is by the prompting of God's spirit made possible by the death of Christ as purposed by God the Father that answers the great mystery of verse 18. How is it that God shows justice to rebels via grace and mercy? It is through Jesus Christ. Justice for the Christian is that Jesus paid the full penalty for our disobedience. And thus it would be unjust of God to show us anything but lavish grace and rich mercy, for that is what Jesus earned on our behalf. And in this way, intimate relationship with Yahweh is possible. We're no longer rebels, friends. We're dearly beloved, perfect children in his eyes. And when he looks at us, he sees nothing but the perfect work of Jesus. And that makes possible... The third glorious implication of Yahweh's help. Here it is, third one. The future with Yahweh is absolutely glorious. For all those who cry out to Yahweh and who receive mercy in Christ, there is absolutely nothing standing in the way of his showering us with grace upon grace. It is joyful for him to do so. He loves to do it. And so the image in verses 23 through 26 here is that of paradise. There is abundant food, abundant water. The towers of the enemies have all fallen, and even the animals that work the ground are eating seasoned food. It's like gourmet stuff that animals eat. I, I'm not an agricultural guy. I'm, I'm a computer guy. Uh, but the point is all the creation is blessed. We're told that the moon will be as bright as the sun and the sun will be seven times brighter. Now that doesn't mean we're going to need sunscreen and glory. It means that we will see with perfect clarity. There will be no shadow that distorts our view. There will be, there will be not even a hint of possibly somehow missing the absolutely glorious future we have with Yahweh. No misunderstanding, no darkness, nothing will mislead us. We will see him as he is and we're gonna love it. So number four, and finally, our response is joyful obedience. In verse 22, 
our response to all this grace and intimacy and glory is that we toss away all the lesser idols, the things in which we'd formerly trusted. We don't need them. We don't want them. We only want Yahweh. That's a huge shift, friends. Listen, formerly we'd shouted down the prophets so that they wouldn't even speak his name. We ran from him. We wanted nothing to do with Yahweh. But now he's all we want. He's everything. We find no place for anything lesser. This is what, this is what the, uh, the theologian Thomas Chalmers called the expulsive power of a new affection. It means when you find something new, something better, everything else, it's expelled. It's out. Get it out of here. I don't want it. This is what I've been waiting for. And that which has supreme worth, supreme glory is God is Yahweh. And when we find him, we do not begrudgingly let go of our idols, but we kick them out. We want them out of here. Go. It's great. Have you found that supreme worth, friends? Is that the way you view Yahweh? Are you tossing away the idols? Are you turning from false gods who cannot help you? Are you turning from secret sins that will not rescue you? If not, there awaits a greater satisfaction in Yahweh than you have yet known. And so you're in need of help. Cry out to him. He's waiting, poised. He can't wait for you to ask. Don't go another day without the brightness of seven suns in your eyes. But there's still one last problem, right? What about Assyria? What of the genuine threats that sent us running to man for help in the first place? Well, as you might expect, Yahweh doesn't leave that stone unturned, and he addresses it in our last few verses. Let's keep reading at 27. Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger and in thick rising smoke. His lips are full of fury and his tongue is like a devouring fire. His breath is like an overflowing stream that reaches up to the neck to sift the nations with the sieve of destruction and to place on the jaws of the peoples a bridle that leads astray. You shall have a song as in the night when a holy feast is kept and gladness of heart as when one sets out on the, on the, to the sound of the flute to go to the mountain of the Lord, to the rock of Israel. And the Lord will cause his majestic voice to be heard and the descending blow of his arm to be seen in furious anger and a flame of devouring fire with a cloudburst and storm and hailstones. The Assyrians will be terror-stricken at the voice of the Lord when he strikes with his rod. And every stroke of the appointed staff that the Lord lays on them will be to the sound of tambourines and lyres. Battling with brandished arm, he will fight with them. For a burning place has long been prepared. Indeed, for the king, it is made ready. Its pyre made deep and wide with fire and wood in abundance. The breath of the Lord, like a stream of sulfur, kindles it. This is not the first time we've seen Yahweh's judgment in today's text. But this time, it is not against the people of Judah, but against Assyria. 
And verses 31 and 32, there's this image of a shepherd warrior. Yahweh striking with his rod and his staff against those who would dare to threaten his sheep. In verse 30, he brings with him a spectacular storm full of fire and hail. On that day of judgment, there will be no guessing who the one fighting is. Yahweh's voice will be heard and his arm will be seen. And what our translation calls a burning place in in, uh, verse 33 is a reference to a garbage dump engulfed in fire. It's what the people of Judah uses their word for hell. And in just a few chapters, Assyria and its king will experience the fulfillment of this prophecy. We're going to cover that in just a few weeks. But I'll give you the spoiler. Egypt has nothing to do with it. Now, did you notice what role Judah played in this, these few verses here? Verse 29 and 32 speak of a song of gladness and of flutes and tambourines and lyres being played. What's happening? Friends, Judah is singing. They're rejoicing in the complete salvation made possible by Yahweh. And we, we must be very, very clear here. This is not a sadistic rejoicing. Okay? They're not looking down in Assyria and declaring, you are worthy of this judgment. Yay! And we, we are so good. We are worthy of this blessing. Yay. It's nothing like that. No. No. These, those who are singing are those who just a few minutes ago were being shattered like a potter's vessel. Remember? And those who were unwilling to return to Yahweh and telling the prophets to shut up. Friends, this singing is ultimately out of thankfulness to Yahweh. Yes, in part for his physical deliverance from Assyria, but even more so out of the awe that they themselves are being spared. And they were being spared and shown mercy and shown grace, not because of who they are, but because of the character of Yahweh. So the only part they played was to cry out to Yahweh. And so they cry out once more in song. And in just a few moments, we're going to join our Judean friends in their song. But first, I need to ask you, are you still refusing Yahweh? All of us have done so. The only question is, Are you still doing so? This judgment we just read about, with the ultimate destination being the burning garbage pyre of hell, is coming once again on all of those who persist in their rebellion against Yahweh. But joy and mercy and grace are readily available for all of those who would cry out to him. Have you done so? I'd like to invite the worship team to come back up now to sing our closing song. And as they come, I'm, I'm going to read Isaiah chapter 31. I, I know some of you were wondering if I forgot that part in the outline. No, I didn't. But the text of chapter 31 is remarkably parallel to what we just read in chapter 30. And so I don't know this, but I wonder if chapter 31 isn't actually the song that God's people were singing at the end of chapter 30. And if it's not, 
it would have been a really good candidate. So would you please stand with me as I read Isaiah chapter 31, the song of the rescued rebel. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. And yet he is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and they will all perish together. For thus the Lord said to me, As a lion or a young lion growls over his prey, and when a band of shepherds is called out against him, he is not terrified by their shouting or daunted at their noise. So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion and on his hill. Like birds hovering, so the Lord of hosts will protect, will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will spare and rescue it. Turn to him from whom people have deeply revolted, O children of Israel. For in that day, everyone shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which your hands have sinfully made for you. And the Assyrian shall fall by a sword, not of man. And a sword, not of man, shall devour him. And he shall flee from the sword, and his young men shall be put to forced labor. His rock shall pass away in terror, and his officers desert the standard in panic, declares the Lord, whose fire it is in Zion, and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. That's the song of the rescued rebel, friends. We're not going to sing that one. We have another great one here. Let's join together and praise our King.